Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Okay, Houston, we've had a problem here. This is Houston, say again, please. Uh, Houston, we've had a problem. Welcome to Space Junk Podcast. I'm your host, PhD student and COVID-style icon, Annie Hanmer. And in this episode, I bring you part two of my conversation with the brilliant Ingrid Okut. If you haven't listened to part one, do so now or you will be very lost. Dr. Ingrid Okut is a historian of science and media in the 20th century, specialising in depictions of science on TV. In this part of our conversation, we talk about Cadbury and Julius Sumner Miller, Dr. Carl, things that go bang, and we also have a good go at the mass marketing campaign that sells guilty parents STEM, and why we think that STEM and also non-STEM are for adults too. We jump straight into this, so wash your hands and hang on to your face masks. I was going to ask you how you think that the way that we communicate science today is different from the way it was communicated historically or maybe even the same. I'm not sure. My perception of it is that in some ways not much has changed. If I go to a a science communication sort of lecture for for eight to 12-year-olds, there's always liquid nitrogen. Something always goes bang. There's always some discussion about how big space is and how we don't know how it works. But look, this is gravity and it's kind of like they've just lifted it straight out of Julia Sumner Miller and plonked it in front of you <laughs> in a lecture theatre. And maybe this is just Australia. Maybe the US is way more advanced with this stuff. But it does feel like our science communication hasn't changed that much. On the other hand, maybe our science fiction has or it hasn't. You're the expert. What do you think? Oh, I, I am, but this is where I have to turn into the historian and ask you some questions. So Julia Sumner Miller is someone who comes up as a guy in my research I heard he'd gone to Australia and had a whole career down there. Is that true? Yeah. Um, when I was a kid, I went to the Cadbury factory in oh I think, Tasmania. And yeah. there's this whole thing because he did this partnership with Cadbury chocolate. Yeah. You know, the famous the glass and a half of full cream milk in every Cadbury chocolate bar. And so it was this argument that Cadbury's chocolate was healthy and was good for children because it had milk in it. Glass of milk, very full. A card on top. Take my hand away. What holds it up? Atmospheric pressure. But the slightest disturbance, and all goes boom. With care, you can all do this demonstration, and you can all enjoy the goodness of a glass and a half of full cream dairy milk. And this is in the 200-gram block of Cadbury dairy milk chocolate. And I say, when you think of chocolate, think of Cadbury. 
this was like this big thing. And Cadbury actually still uses the the logo of the glass and a half of milk being poured into their chocolate square. It was like this huge thing. So when I went to the Cadbury factory as an eight to 12 year old, there was a lot of focus on this. But yeah, I think it was, it was, he was really influential and speaking to my parents in particular, they grew up watching him on TV and he was like the coolest. Um, Yeah. And I think more recently we had Dr. Carl, who I don't know if you've come across. No, who's Dr. Carl? Dr. Carl Kruselniski is um, kind of like the biggest science communicator for maybe if you ask anyone who's aged between like 25 and 35, they grew up with Dr. Carl books and Dr. Carl on TV. And he was this um, this science communicator who was kind of like really Julius Sumner Miller-esque. Oh. And wrote books and all of this stuff. He's, I actually know him. He's really awesome. But oh, it was really dude. weird the first time I met him. I had this moment of I'm meeting this, this hero <laughs> who I grew up watching. So, yeah. Um, this but is definitely, like, the man in the white coat doing the experiment on the table with colored liquids is very much the mold. So I want to I take your answer now and, 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 and respond to it in two parts. So the, the first part is in terms of what's changed. I think... Your, I think your response is a very good one. Nothing's changed in some ways. In some ways, for folks who are really interested, especially folks who come out of the um, chemical or physical sciences, um, their approach to science outreach still looks very much like it did in 1948. It's a lot about experiments. It's about turning things different colors. And again, some of that can be very exciting. I don't know if you or your uh, listeners were tuned into the most recent Miss American past pageant. I think the winning Miss America, she's a pharmacist and she did this amazing like um, like two second experiment sort of where like things like popped up and turned colors and it was very visually very exciting. Um, and that's sort of the showman science that has always captivated people. And so that, again, that looks very similar. But mm. in terms of what has changed, um, over time there has finally been more of a recognition that science fiction and I would say science realistic fiction has a huge part to play in both recruiting young minds into science and into STEM and a part of keeping people who are not scientists actually interested in it. Lots of science series like, you know, CSI, the original X-Files, even shows like Big Bang Theory have received a lot of respect. And there's a really great organization who I've worked with in LA called the Science and Entertainment Exchange. And they're marvelous. It's a group of uh, like dedicated individuals, very small office, and it's run from the National Academy of Science. But this group, the Science and Entertainment Exchange, their whole job is to connect scientists and screenwriters. And so they host science salons and they get these people in rooms in New York and LA, and they just try to facilitate connection because they know that screenwriters really do want to have often a sciencey element in their script. And they mm. mean well, and they just need to know the person to talk to. Um, and so I think that's really what's changed because in the 1950s, the 1960s, uh, you know, it was pretty dodgy to have, to really foster those connections. Again, NASA reaching out to Star Trek and Star Trek reaching out to NASA was the, was kind of an exception. Like NASA would do that, but other than that, you didn't see a lot of, 
science companies or science universities reaching out to fictional TV shows. Um, And now, again, there's an acceptance of that. But to go into what has changed as well, your excitement talking about Dr. Carl, I mean, I have to think about how a lot of that is actually something I study as well, is the relationship between the fan and the charismatic science presenter. What's interesting is that's changed over time because in the 1950s, you would have kids write in to a, a famous scientist like Mr. Wizard and say, hey, you know, can you help me with a science fair project? And a secretary for Mr. Wizard would probably write in. And today, what's amazing is that, that the science communicators are huge. They are rock stars in a way Ooh. that they have never been rock stars. Uh, Carl Sagan was one of the very first scientists to reach a huge audience. But the people who've worked with him and after him, I would say, have gone way beyond where he even would have dreamed of fostering that connection between an audience. And I think it's amazing to see the ways in which science um, scientists who are in the public eye interact with others through Twitter or through Instagram or social media. And so there is this, I think, more than ever, this idea that there's a very close connection between the fan and um you know, the, the science communicator. And that's very fun to watch. I got to fangirl over my favorite scientist a couple of years ago, and that was cool. There is still this idea, though, that science is for kids in yes. the science communication that I see around me, okay. whether it's on Instagram or Twitter or on TV or any other sort of medium. And yes. this leads me to a theory, which is you cool. use the word recruiting, And I have a theory that STEM has become a cult and that they're trying to recruit children to it. And that, Uh and this is not like an anti-science message, but more along the lines of the concept of STEM has taken on such preeminence in discourse around children's education that in Sydney, we have buses that drive past and they've got pictures of jazzy looking women doing experiments with robots saying, you know, I chose STEM. Or, um, like, these, these really kind of very oh. recruitmenty messages, especially to young women, saying you've got to get on board with the STEM wagon if you want yeah. to be successful. I find that really odd because I think, for me, I've seen that kind of in the last couple of years, especially through social media, start to, yeah. to rise up. I have a pretty small social media following, <laughs> but... If I look at my stats, my statistics tilt pretty firmly male in terms of the people who follow me. But if I look at the women who follow me, it's a much younger cohort. It's like the teenagers and 20s who are kind of interested in what I'm doing. I I find this really weird. So what do you think? I think there's a lot of fear attached to STEM, wouldn't you say? You know, again, in terms of I think recruiting is a very good way to think through it, where I'm reminded about discourse about science and science education in the 1930s, which is, you know, ah, almost 100 years, I guess another 20 years before it's 100 years. Um, But this idea that if uh, where parents really push their children into chemistry, because they were afraid that their children otherwise would, you know, sink into a a hole, and they would never get employed. And I feel like there's a lot of discourse around fear in the same way these days with STEM, uh, especially around the idea of the importance of teaching children to code, which again, I can certainly speak to the 
the idea of the importance of teaching children different ways to think, but the idea of setting up kids to code is potentially can be very difficult, I think, on kids. Um, and I think what I worry with as well is that perhaps that fo the focus on STEM, again, as just really being for kids is very exclusionary because there are lots of adults who would love to learn more about science, you know? And I think that for years, like you say, there's been a lot of focus around kids. In the United States, there's finally this um, awareness that there are lots of people who are interested in science, maybe just for the, the sake of science itself. And so there are some cool bars in New York City that are like science-themed bars and they host, you know, comedy science nights. There are versions of storytelling, live events that are now happening. So I would love to see more of those. Like I would love to see a return to a vision of science that in some ways looked like the science for all, science of the everyday that we saw in the 1950s. I would say a vision of science for all that's not a, not the same sexist vibe that there was in the 50s. <laughs> there was, again, definite like gender divide. But yeah. Um, but I, I would agree with you. I mean, I think there is, in some ways, yeah, I can see how STEM, yeah, I think STEM has been set up to be exclusionary and it's so unfortunate. You know, it might cause some child to think that they should put away their dreams of being an artist and, you know, learn how to code instead. And then why not, why not do both? And I think this is why it's so valuable to have folks who study science and technology studies and the history of science, right? You know, it's, because we try to help maybe show that there is this inter interzone, you know, they, there are these gray areas. It's not a binary. Something I notice is that when we teach, when we try and communicate science to eight to 12 year olds, you can get away with just saying, isn't science wonderful? Isn't the world fascinating? Yeah. Look yes. at this thing that looks amazing and how cool is space? You can yeah. get away with that because in a way, eight to 12 year olds don't really know that much about the world. And so you can get away with kind of teaching them about the great things about the world and, and couching that in scientific terms. And mm -hmm. it comes off, you're really wholesome and useful. But maybe the reason that we don't focus so much on adults is that for adults, it's more complicated. You can't yeah. teach the scientific factors without also teaching the social factors around them and that interplay between science and technology and society. Yes. And I think that STEM is quite exclusionary in that it has yeah. this idea that it's just this thing that is somehow separate from the rest of what we do in the world. Yes. And you know, maybe the reason that we don't do it is it's just too hard that society is too complicated. Right. I mean, that's the thing where like as a historian, it's like, no, but we have to, we have to teach, we have to work on that. We've got, and I think, well, yeah. And I think about these, this, there were discussions about this happening in the 1970s. Right. And so there would be discussions for some, uh, some unnamed children's shows, you know, where they argued about this. Should we teach kids about science and uh, society? Oh. Um, and you remember that group of um, professors who I mentioned that in the 1950s had basically created a whole bunch of science education textbooks about physics? Yeah, so that same group in the 1970s, they went around and they said, we shouldn't teach about science and society. We shouldn't do that. Science should only be about wonder. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so, I mean, yeah. I, I, but I mean, again, there were people who resisted them. There are shows that resisted it. 
Um, certainly. And I think if we look at Carl Sagan's um, original Cosmos, one of the interesting well done parts of that series for sure was the, the nuanced approach that it took at looking at the, um, the effects of uh, nuclear disaster. Mm. And nuclear disaster. Um, but Carl Sagan got a huge amount of feedback for talking about nuclear winter in the first place. I think we do children a disservice if we presuppose that they are not interested in science and society and the complications of science and politics. Because again, I would point and I would say there were tons of kids who were fascinated by Star Trek and the kids who were fascinated by Star Trek ended up becoming NASA engineers. So clearly having serious discussions about science and warfare didn't scare them off <laughs> as young children. It helped them show and understand that science, science is a tool. Well, every um, time I give a talk to kids, they want to talk about the legal aspects of space. They want to talk about mining on the moon and they want to talk about environmental issues that they're so aware of and really hash out, well, you know, we've got the science here. But the politics yeah. is doing something else. And how can that possibly be? Yeah, every semester, we get a, a fresh group of awesome undergraduates come through our, our courses at the Department of History and Philosophy of Science. And we almost have to break their hearts every year because they come in and yeah. they're like, I'm doing a science degree. I love science. I know so much about science. And we have to problematize it. And we say, well, yeah, but science can be sexist. Science yeah. can be racist. Look yeah. at Nazi science, what went wrong here? Like, and yeah. they had this idea in their head that science is somehow magical and we have to break to, to say, well, no, it's kind of just like everything else and it's a reflection of yeah. society and the problems of society exist in science as well. And then right. you, see their, you see their brains kind of clicking over and suddenly they're like, oh, my God, everything that I've been raised with, almost this religious ideal of STEM in the white coat being just perfectly objective and all of that isn't true. And yeah. what we then have to do is spend the rest of the semester sort of reassuring them that even though it's not magical and perfect, it is still very, very good and there's still yeah. lots that is important. But it, I personally think that having a more complex view of what science is and acknowledging that it has similarities with other things that we do in society and mm -hmm. that all of our social problems also exist in science doesn't doesn't take away from it. It makes it richer, right. but yes, it's absolutely. very hard to argue that when you yeah. know when it comes to kids, especially. Especially when it comes to kids, I wonder. Do you think it's because we want to keep kids innocent? This idea that you know they they shouldn't they shouldn't be bothered to know about these things. We, you know, I think. You know, I think that's a lot of where, why people have gotten upset about um, the kids who are involved in the climate activism. And I can't roll off their names, but I know there's a group of, there's a large group of teenagers at this point around the world that are, yeah. you know, advocating for climate. And I think it's part of the reason their parents and not their parents, but certainly other adults have been uh, angry about it is that these kids should be innocent. They should be enjoying science. They should trust science. Right, and they shouldn't right. be worried about this. I, right. I had a conversation over Christmas with my great aunt about this, where she said, well, you know, Greta Thunberg, she's so angry. I don't think that children her age should have that much anger. I think that it's, right. um, you know, it's wrong. They should be enjoying their childhood. And I right. get it because this is a generation of people who grew up 
during the war or grew up in really difficult times. And for them, they say, well, you know, no one's dropping bombs on you. Go out and have a childhood that we didn't get to have. But I I sort of have to explain, on the other hand, that for for this generation, that kind of is their Cold War, if you like. It's it's the the global warming of of Cold War. Anyway, there's some joke there. But but it is a real thing that they live with and a real anxiety that exists. And I think, I totally agree. I think we do them a great disservice by refusing to engage with that and saying, oh, they're too young, they'll understand when they're older or something. For now, we should just show them some nice explosions of chemicals. It's all very cynical because then what we're saying is if you learn to code and you study STEM, then you'll have a good job and you'll have lots of money and you can live within yeah. society comfortably. And that's what I want for my child. I think it's a very human instinct and I get Absolutely. it. Me too. I completely get it. And uh, But by the same token, you can never predict jobs. You can never predict employment. It's like generals always fight the previous war. Yeah. Parents always educate their children as they wish they had been educated. But a generation later, everything's shifted. We may as well just educate children broadly. There's no need to choose STEM. You can choose everything. Yeah, exactly. And again, how great to to show that everyone can choose STEM. I mean, I think that to me is the more um, open and inclusive idea that there's something in STEM for everybody. I think one thing I think about in terms of, you know, the way things were versus the way things are now. In the 1950s, there was this huge encyclopedia craze. And this is the era where people would sell uh, big encyclopedia sets door to door, you know, and people yeah. would end up with a book and all of those great sets. And it's because there was this keen interest in understanding the world and how things worked within it. And I think about that every time I Google um, iPhone problems that I have, right? <laughs> and I'm like, I have no idea how my iPhone works. I don't know whether it means that I should have learned how to code when I was 15 or if only there was more um, adult education programs or sources, good sources for science education later on in life. And again, that's the niche I would love to see filled. I think that would be very cool. And there are some community and library programs in the United States that where you have um, kids who teach tech to seniors. Mm. And I think that is the coolest thing. But, you know, again, a lot of the, the technology in our world is so obscured. Again, it's like you know, iPhone, who knows how it works? But we should. We should understand how an iPhone works and we should understand where the mining occurs that creates the components that go into an iPhone. Again, we need to understand science and society. And I guess that's what I track back to. It needs to be a part of STEM education if we do STEM education. But again, with you, yeah. I would agree there are these problems with <laughs> that are intrinsic. Mm. I mean, arguably for children in high school or even primary school, the fact that their iPhone can take a photo and send it to someone is as important to address and have education about as the way that that works within their phone. Maybe more important. It's very complex. Yeah. I feel like I've taken too much of your time. Was there anything else that you wanted to flag before you um, go on with yeah. your wonderful day? I um, I appreciate, I so appreciate this conversation with you, Annie. It's so wonderful to connect. Um, your, your viewers should know that Annie um, introduced herself at a conference to me a couple of years ago, and I was just immediately impressed by your 
open and positive and inquisitive spirit, you know, and it's just been delightful to follow this podcast and follow your Twitter feed. Uh, and your viewers are welcome. Viewers, again, see how used to TV I am. <laughs> your listeners are welcome to um, follow my stuff. I mean, I I tweet at Ingrid Rocket, um, but I don't do it nearly as well as you do at Annie. Uh, oh, so, yeah. I think that is untrue. But yes, if you want to find Ingrid, you can Google Ingrid Okert or you can look up Ingrid Rocket. And yeah. it, it, it all goes to the same place, basically. It, it took me ages to work out that her last name was not Rocket. Um, but it's all sorts of very interesting things. So definitely. I've had people register for me at conferences as Rocket, and it's a bit been a bit confusing. <laughs> that would be. Well, thank you so much. Um, and Annie, thank yeah. you so much. This has been a pleasure. And thank you for letting me think out loud about some things with you. And uh, I, please stay in touch. This is great. You've been listening to Space Junk. For more info on science on TV, you can find Ingrid on social media where she is at Ingrid Rocket. You can also search me up on at Annie Hanmer or send me an email on thespacejunkpod at gmail.com. And we now also have a COVID co-video edition of Space Junk Podcast, which is on YouTube. So if you head to YouTube and type in Space Junk Podcast, search for the same logo that's on this podcast, you'll find that. And there's some special episodes where I talk to really amazing experts about all sorts of things to do with space law, space and policy, space and society. And I also read you all five major space treaties dressed in space gear uh, in their entirety, including the preamble and the general assembly resolutions that accompany them. And if there was ever a time to be really, really nerdy, it is now. So feel free to check those out and uh, feel free to get in contact as well. Bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.